obesity can contribute to precocious puberty, but also obesity contributes to uh, tissue around the breast, which ne- which isn't necessarily true breast tissue, but which can be interpreted as precocious puberty as well. Precocious puberty, that is puberty that seems to start before the age of eight in girls and nine in boys, seems to be on the rise. But whether that's due to an increase in incidence or perhaps just greater attention is unknown. What we do know is that precocious puberty in girls is commonly idiopathic, while in boys it's a red flag for pathology. But either way, their first point of call is the GP. In this podcast, Stephen Bradley, a GP, and Neil Lawrence, a paediatric trainee, and both authors of a new article on bmj.com, join us to discuss how common precocious puberty is, how GPs should respond to a family presenting with it, and if intimate examination is actually warranted in primary care. Stephen, thank you for joining us on this podcast. Thanks a lot for having us. And Neil, welcome. Oh, I don't get In your article, I was kind of surprised to see how common this actually was. So there's been a few... Um few studies that have looked at this and if you look at the numbers in the article as well they're quite they're quite varying in in the estimates of how common this is so the study from the states uh, estimates that about a tenth of caucasian girls and a quarter of black girls have um have precocious puberty and then that estimate is is slightly less in europe and then is even lower still with a diagnosis registry study, uh, which is probably a lot lower because those were diagnoses that were actually coded. So the studies in America, I believe, um, looked at a sample of of patients who were presenting to their clinician for different reasons. So it was kind of a population slice. Um, and yeah, it does seem that it is quite po- very common in the, in the population at large, which in itself brings a bit of a conundrum for the clinician. Because clearly, I think there's a situation where we could not um, really have all of the patients who have signs of precocious puberty seen in secondary care clinics. Yeah, so um, obviously also the first point of contact is, is often primary care uh, and uh, and that's what we'll be focusing on in this. Um, the data you mentioned there very much focuses on girls. Do we know anything about... Um, prevalence in in boys and uh if potentially that's that's changing too well the data on boys is a lot is a lot more scarce i believe maybe neil can comment a bit more on this as well but just because it's so it's it's such a less common uh issue in boys and when it is present in boys it's much more often a, a pathological phenomenon yeah i think that's important isn't it really because the um the, the percentage of boys that are affected by precocious puberty is much less than girls. But um, of those boys that are affected, the proportion which have an underlying um, organic diagnosis that should be dealt with first line, if you like, um, is much greater. So I think that's one of the most important things that comes out of the paper, really, that that any, any boy with signs of precocious puberty um, should be referred to to a tertiary centre um, because the likelihood of that being benign is is much less than, than with girls. 
Mm. And we'll get into to those mechanisms in a little bit. Um, but before that, I think there's this general sense that, and there's even some data that you point to in the paper to suggest that um, breast development, uh, at least, is happening earlier in girls. But, I mean, it's a, it's a slightly confused picture because the the age at which they first start menstruating is has been fairly um, flat across the decades. So, this sense that the precocious puberty is on the increase, um, is that actually true? What's happening there? I think it's a confusing picture, actually. Um, and it's quite difficult to say definitively what exactly is happening. I think we have more of a sense now of precocious puberty occurring because more patients are and their, and their parents are, are presenting with it as a concern. Also, I think um, there have been changes in nutrition and Obesity contributes to raised estrogen and that can cause the development of female sexual characteristics as well as aromatization, uh, promoting growth through androgens. So, so it's quite complicated, actually. So there is, there is a mechanism by which obesity can contribute to precocious puberty, but also obesity contributes to uh, tissue around the breast, which, ne- which isn't necessarily true breast tissue but which can be interpreted as precocious puberty as well or can make parents and and children worried about entering puberty early. Mm. And also that kind of, you know, positive reinforcement that this is something that parents might be looking out for, so they are more likely to to see this as well. Yeah, I think that I think that's definitely the case. So you mentioned there that parents are you know coming uh, presenting. This must be something that that parents find quite distressing. Um, how do they usually spot that their child may have, have started uh, puberty early? Is it is it mostly breast development? Um, and that's what's causing them to, to present to primary care? Yeah, I think it's, it's highly variable, actually. And often parents will be distressed or worried, and often they'll be quite matter-of-fact about it and just and really just be asking for reassurance or, or, or asking for um, an opinion as to what's going on. Usually, I would say, and I, I've not seen a great number of patients present with this, but usually, in my experience, it's been concerning girls around breast development and maybe being a little bit taller than peers and also body odour as well. Body odour is one of the things that often comes up when you when you speak to, to parents um, because it tends to be quite striking when it does start to develop. Um, so, yeah, secondary to um, breast enlargement, you do hear about body odour and the, the use of um, voice breaking can be can be quite helpful um, from a physician point of view to to mark the onset of puberty. Um, but that's that's less common for for parents to complain about. Mm. And when they do present, what are parents usually worried about if they are indeed worried as opposed to being matter of fact like you suggested, Stephen? Uh, Again, I think it can be a variety. I think often they're worried on behalf of their children about their children feeling different or excluded or being embarrassed for them. Um, I think there can be some concern around their child's uh, entering into into adulthood or sexual maturity earlier than their peers or perhaps earlier than the parent would have, would have anticipated. Um, also, there can be concern about, about starting periods early and parents might be worried about um, 
the logistics really of, of their child's starting periods, particularly if their child is still in, in primary school and how that might be embarrassing or distressing for their child. Okay, I think this is probably a good point to go back and try and refresh everyone's memory of uh, medical school. Um, Neil, what is actually, what starts puberty? What do we know about, you know, what kicks off that process in normal development? Sure. Well, it's, um, I mean, it's all about the the hypothalamus pituitary gonadal axis um, that we that we remember from from medical school and the uh, the release of um, gonadotrophin releasing hormone from from the hypothalamus that encourages the the release of LH and FSH from from the anterior pituitary so that's luteinizing hormone and follicle sim- stimulating hormone uh, which in turn then have an effect on the gonads, be it the ovaries or the testes, to release gonadal sex hormones, uh, which in turn causes puberty. Um, so the question is really when, when and why the, the original surge of GnRH starts. And that is where we're not quite so sure, really. It's difficult to tell um, when and why that process starts. It does happen in a pulsatile fashion, so it's very difficult to to, to measure in studies. Um, and indeed, some of the some of the tests in secondary care are, are more related to measuring the hormones further down that uh, that cycle, if you like. So I don't I don't think we truly know what starts that um, that original increase in pulsatile activity of the GnRH, and that's what makes it such a, a fascinating topic and and one that's difficult to predict in different Mm. patients and that obviously makes it uh difficult to know what might be starting a precocious puberty but um Stephen, you mentioned uh obesity is an issue and that in boys um it might be uh, a more pathological thing so um if we start with girls, what what might be leading to a precocious puberty, and and how is that happening? In in girls, we do know that um, the majority of girls are um, termed idiopathic precocious puberty. Um, in the you know approximately three quarters or even more end up with the diagnosis of idiopathic precocious puberty. Um, however. What we're learning more and more about, particularly in recent years, is the genetic basis behind a lot of that. So a lot of girls that would end up with that diagnosis of idiopathic precocious puberty have been found in some countries in different studies to actually have an underlying um, genetic mutation that has caused that early start to the, the puberty in their case, which is often... Which makes sense because we know that uh, a large, important part of the history with these patients is to, to check what age their own parents, and particularly their mother, went through hmm. uh, went through puberty themselves. So we know that there's a familial uh, familial causes to it, and I think we're learning more and more as as the time goes on about the genetic causes behind those. Um, however, currently, with looking at this from a practical primary care point of view, getting to the bottom of an individual patient's 
particular genetic cause for their idiopathic precocious puberty is unlikely to be of any any use when it actually comes to to them individually or, or personalizing their treatment so I, I don't really see any any um, increase in the necessity for any genetic testing in, in the near future regarding that of course that is the majority of patients that are idiopathic but as clinicians it's very important to turn it around and to make sure that we're not uh, missing the, 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 the pathological causes and so the article mentions a, um, a lot of things that it's important to to do in relation to both boys and girls but particularly girls if you if you were thinking about managing them a bit more conservatively um, and and a lot of that is is basically about the history and examination as, as most most of medicine in primary care is you know it's about the the order in which they went through puberty with regards to the typical tanner stages that we outline in, mm. in the uh, in the article and also how quickly these changes are occurring and what sort of um what sort of growth measurements the, the patients are exhibiting during that time has there been a particular acceleration in their height or anything like this um so if any of those are unusual then you might consider that there's more likely to be a, a pathological cause mm. and um and those pathological causes uh, um can be divided quite nicely into central causes that are causing an in increase in that in that GnRH that's coming from the hypothalamus, or they could be peripheral in the sense that there's more sex steroids being kicked out of the um, out of the axis lower down that is causing the onset of puberty a little earlier. So they're the things as clinicians that we that we need to worry about, if you like, before we could think about uh, reassuring patients about precocious puberty. Mm. Um, so that's for girls and at the beginning uh, you mentioned that um, in boys it is, it is much more likely to be related to a pathological cause so what might be happening in boys that um, that starts precocious puberty so some of the serious causes that we that we need to consider are central nervous system causes so I mean this could be secondary to previous problems that they've had with infections like meningitis or encephalitis when they were younger um, or trauma but also new onset problems such as intracranial um, cancer such as craniopharyngioma and things that might grow near to the pituitary gland that are likely to to knock off that axis um, there's also various genetic syndromes that that, that we can consider um, things like neurofibromatosis is one of the more common ones, although obviously still quite rare um, for for people to see in primary care. Um, but probably common enough for most GPs to come across it um, once or twice in their career. And then there's uh, there's other things further down the axis, um, so congenital conditions like congenital adrenal hyperplasia, um, they will be acting independent of the gonadotrophin so the increase in the size of the adrenal glands due to a cortisol deficiency that is going to cause increased androgens without the need for gnrh and um, congenital adrenal hyperplasia is one of the causes that you might see presenting in boys a little later on mm. with precocious puberty because 
girls will have more likely presented earlier on because of problems with ambiguous genitalia. Um, so that's certainly one of the causes of a gonadotrophin-independent precocious puberty that you'd want to consider in boys. So puberty is is one part of uh, you know a lot of development that happens to to children as they become teenagers and then adults. There's this sort of physical part of it, but also a, a mental and uh, emotional sort of maturation as well. Um, do we know with precocious puberty, at least maybe the idiopathic one, um, does it sort of speed all of that that process up? Do people just mature generally faster or or can it knock some things out of whack so that someone might uh, mature physically more quickly than they do uh, emotionally or, or mentally? I think it's a really fascinating question and I think probably the answer is we don't entirely know. I know certainly a lot of a lot of parents who present with this will will also say things like they're moodier than they were before, they're becoming a teenager. But it's quite difficult to put your finger on whether that is actually happening because of, from a hormonal point of view, because of precocious puberty, um, or or whether you know it could be a reaction to the change, the changing body itself, and the child is is manifesting behaviours because mm-hmm. of that, mm-hmm. because of the sort of realization that they're going through adulthood with with those changes as well. I'm not I'm not I'm not familiar with any any real data which demonstrates uh, emotional maturation as a as a process that comes from precocious puberty as well so i think it's probably a very a very complicated picture actually but a very interesting one hmm. neil might have something to say about this as well i'm, I'm doing some other work around congenital adrenal hyperplasia at the moment actually and trying to um use proper standardized scoring sets um to judge people's emotional and um mental well-being uh, is fraught with difficulties and um, and I, I don't think there's been any really conclusive work done on it around precocious puberty. One of the one of the interesting things that came out in the peer review for this article which I think was particularly useful was a comment around um, periods and the and the desire of, of parents sometimes to want to postpone periods on the assumption that that will be emotionally or, or psychosocially beneficial for mm. the child and the the comment from peer review was that we we don't necessarily know that's the case and we can't necessarily assume that the burden of of medicalization is is worth that trade-off so i mean we don't we don't really have an answer there for in some cases it might be uh, postponing periods might be the correct thing to do for a patient but i think the real thing to do is, or the, what we should be doing, is is acknowledging that uncertainty with, with parents and the children. Mm, I will get into that that management sort of phase, uh, in a second. But before then, I wondered, um, presuming again that this is this is an idiopathic precocious puberty and, and not based on uh, some of the the pathological things that that Neil's talked about, which will have their own sequelae, but. What's the long-term effect of of precocious puberty? Does it um, does it change uh, anything for for children? Well, the data that we looked at actually suggests that uh, children who have idiopathic precocious puberty, which is not which is not advancing rapidly, um, girls I'm, I'm referring to here, uh, who are over the age of six, then the long-term 
the long term uh, outlook is good, really, and not not much different from um, children, who, other children, or children who do have idiopathic precocious puberty and choose to have choose to have treatment. So um, I think we I think we mentioned in the article that children who have uh, precocious puberty at the age of seven or uh, onset, at the age of seven, their periods actually are, are probably only going to occur a few months earlier than uh, a comparable population cohort. Mm. Similarly, height, height uh, potential doesn't necessarily seem to be much different in, in patients who have idiopathic precocious puberty. Or, or between patients who choose to have um, treatment with GNRH analogs or, or patients who don't. Uh, again, Neil might be able to shed a bit more kind of specific detail on that question. Yeah, I think around this um, is the one thing that came up from uh, our patient public involvement that is that is important to realise uh, is, is the comment um, from a parent that once the decision to treat precocious pu- puberty with GnRH analogs is made, that they were um, keen for that treatment to be put in place relatively quickly. And I suppose the important thing to bear in mind around that with, with girls is that once Menarche has been established, um, you have missed the boat, if you like, for treating. So if there is the situation where you have discussed it properly, the pros and cons with with the patient and the family um, and the decision is made to treat, we have to realise that um, there is a certain amount of a time limit in girls before we can commence that treatment. And that's important to bear in mind. Mm. So there's a lot to balance here um, for someone in, in for a doctor in primary care who uh, has someone presenting uh, with precocious puberty. There's a great deal of uncertainty, but there's also potentially... Um, you know, a, a ticking clock on, on actually doing an intervention. Now, you talked about some of the red flag things earlier, and those are all set out in the article. Um, and you also say that one thing that GPs um, can do is measure growth uh, to, to see where people are on, on the charts. Um, but one thing I thought was interesting that you, you said was comprehensive examination undertaken in primary care is unlikely to yield much additional information. Um, and given that children might be sensitive around this because of the, the changes to their body, um, where do you two stand on actually a GP doing a thorough examination um, of a child? That's a really, really interesting question and also a really difficult one. And we agonised over the wording of this quite a bit in the article. And also there was a bit of difference really between uh, primary care and secondary care perspectives on this. And we're talking really here about about intimate examination. I mean, there are the basics that, that should be done anyway, like height and weight. And preferably if, it's, if, if there's time or it's possible to bring the patient back, charting a, a height velocity. So the concern really is, should we subject a child to a full examination when they're probably going to have similar a similar examination in secondary care anyway? If it, assuming a GP has made a decision that um, referral is is the right thing to do, and it's it's tricky because from a medical legal point of view, if there is something abnormal or pathological that would have 
that could have been identified and would have made the clinician refer urgently, like phone today for an appointment this week instead of a routine appointment, which might happen in a few months, then that's that clinician could be held responsible for for not having made the decision to uh, examine the patient fully. However, however, th- we're, this is this is really the business of risk management, I suppose, in primary care and what is proportionate and what is in the best interest of the child. And we did feel that we couldn't really dogmatically say you must examine every patient fully because, in some instances, I think for GPs, that is not always going to be appropriate and it's not always going to be the right thing for parents and their children, particularly if if they're if they're identified as someone who is not does not have any red flag symptoms and uh, is only is is say over the age of of six and an idiopathic cause is is most likely. So it's difficult and I think I can't or me and Neil can't say what clinicians should do or what primary care clinicians should do in this instance but I think it's something that people have to decide for themselves and also talk to talk to the family about as well. So we've said we have mentioned in the article that if you don't decide to examine fully then you should probably acknowledge that that there's a very small chance that you might miss something but if the child and parent are happier for uh for them not to be examined in in primary care then that is probably reasonable in a lot of circumstances Mm. yeah i think um regarding this topic as well it's really important to uh, bear in mind geography um because it depends exactly where you're working in in primary care and um I mean that in in the sense of if you're if you're in a city where the the, the major centre hospital is just down the road, then referring a, a patient there is is going to be significantly less arduous for them to attend an appointment than it is if they're in a in a rural setting that is a significant distance away from a from a, a major centre. And particularly if you're talking about families that um, that, are, that are tied to public transport or have other comorbidities to, to consider, um, these are the sorts of situations where you start to think, well, yeah, it would be completely appropriate for uh, someone in primary care to do um, everything that they can. And, and there are in-betweens between referring in dependent upon the local area, but with regards to being able to contact specialists in the tertiary centres for advice and perhaps bringing the patient back um, for further assessment in, a, in another appointment might be might be entirely appropriate in those situations. So I think um, I think trying to come down with with one firm line of guidance with regards to that is 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 not ideal, and um, and and that's what primary care is all about to to sort of um, adjust the just the management of the patient to what to what suits them them best. So, if the referral to secondary care uh, or tertiary care does happen. Um, Obviously, for for pathological reasons, uh, treatment can can happen there. Um, but what are some of the the treatment options for idiopathic uh, precocious puberty? You've already mentioned that it might only delay um, the onset of menstruation by a few months, and you know the, there seems to be so much uncertainty around here. Uh, do we have any good actual 
data about what works in terms of um, of management of this? Uh, yes, so I think the um, the the treatment itself, GNRH analogs, are well tested and successful at doing what they are designed to do, and that is to delay the onset of puberty. Um, the question is whether whether it's appropriate to do that for the patient, and how much that 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 um, that treatment burden is likely likely to put on on them as a family and importantly what their expectations are around it um, because it's not appropriate to delay someone's puberty indefinitely because then there will be um, significant problems with um, the metabolic side effects around such treatments and so I think it's it's being upfront with that sort of com- uh, with that with those sorts of um, things to consider early on. That's that's so important with this topic, and to make sure that everyone understands uh, exactly what they can expect from the treatment. Thank you, uh, and and Stephen, anything to to add on there? No, I think I think Neil's covered that. Well, the core conundrum in, in idiopathic precocious puberty, I think, is usually whether whether treatment is is warranted and what the treatment is actually for. And I think the most important thing or one of the most important things I've learned from this article is that one can't assume that the treatment will be beneficial. So it's really vital to explore with the uh, with the patients, with the children, children themselves and their parents what they want to get out of treatment and what treatment can do for them. And I suppose that really characterises a lot of this. It's a, It has to be a very patient, patient-family-centric patient um, process. So as we like, come to the end of this, I, I wonder, what are your, your takeaway messages for primary care doctors who do have someone who um, presents with precocious puberty? Uh, might be useful to separate this into to girls and boys. For a girl presenting with precocious puberty, I think the first question a GP will always want to answer is, is this something serious? Could this be pathological? Should they be seen in secondary care? And if so, should they be seen urgently or routinely? If the the GP feels that this is very, very likely to be an idiopathic form of precocious puberty, but they're wondering about the possibility of, of a pathological cause, then it's probably reasonable often to routine to refer routinely for exclusion of um, of other causes. But if any red flags are present, which are listed in the article, then that referral would need to be an urgent referral. The other thing is when um, talking to parents and children about precocious puberty, I think it's important to reflect on what... Uh, what the patient and parent want to know and what, if they're looking for a referral to secondary care, what they would hope to achieve mm. by that. Because often in cases where precocious puberty is very, very likely to be an idiopathic phenomenon and there is nothing concerning at all really, then these presentations can be managed in primary care or sometimes with a little bit of support from uh, secondary or tertiary care colleagues through email or, or phone calls. Great. And perhaps, Neil, um, we could turn to you for, for your takeaway messages uh, for a boy presenting with precocious puberty. Certainly. So the main 
message of the article is the precocious puberty, that is the onset of puberty before the age of nine years in a boy, is a worrying feature. And um, that is a red flag and should be considered for um, referral to a specialist centre. The things we need to worry about in in those patients are in intracranial causes. Um, And so you may want to assess a patient for that as well. Um, before before sending them on to secondary care to to help you find out the best best place to send them to, um, but certainly precocious puberty in boys is something to worry about. The other thing that would be useful to mention is the role of safety netting in primary care. So if we do think that a child can be referred routinely to secondary care or can be uh, managed with a follow-up in primary care or with with watchful waiting, then it's important to also give some safety netting advice to parents in terms of some of the red flags they might want to watch out for, or even if there's any new symptoms developing that they're that they're concerned about, to come and see uh, to come and see you again, because very rarely precocious puberty can reflect an underlying illness. Great, thank you. Um, well, that article, precocious puberty. Uh, it's now available on bmj.com with all of the information that Neil and Stephen have pointed out that it's, it's really important to actually read. So I'll put links in the podcast text for that. But Neil, Stephen, thank you very much for taking some time to talk to us on the podcast today. Thanks so much, Duncan. I just wanted to make sure that we got an opportunity to thank the families who took part in this and the excellent peer reviewers. We had a lot of a lot of comments and the uh, process of writing the article took a long time actually and also from our editor Kate Adlington who really went above and beyond and was absolutely fantastic and really really supportive and helping us to produce this article <laughs> Good point, thanks That's it for this podcast but we'll be back later this week with Mary Dixon-Woods talking about her essay on improving healthcare and expanding on her idea that improvement doesn't equal QI Thus be available on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from. Until then, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.